You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. My name is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. Today we're sharing Q&As from two horror gems that screened at our annual Scary Movies Film Festival, Villains and Bloodline. Both films open in theaters this week. First up, Villains star Micah Monroe and directors Dan Burke and Robert Olson discussed their darkly funny home invasion thriller. Then, Henry Jacobson, co-writer Avra Lerner Fox, and composer Trevor Gorekas explored their blood-splattered portrait of a serial killer, starring Sean William Scott. Let's go now to those Q&As, both moderated by Film at Lincoln Center programmer Madeline Whittle. And uh, before we begin, I just want to say thank you to our friends at Gunpowder and Sky, who, uh, yeah. Uh, this movie will be hitting theaters in uh, September, September 20th? Yeah, September 20th. Yeah, so come out and see it again. Everybody has to go again. Yeah, I hope you guys liked it enough to purchase another ticket uh, September 20th. Tell all your friends. Yeah, please. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here. It's, uh, Thanks for having us. It's yeah. a huge, thank you. huge treat. Um, to, we're, we're thrilled to open the festival with uh, the New York premiere of your film. Um, so I'll ask a few questions, and I'm sure the audience has a lot to say. Um, but jumping right in, you uh, mentioned that you guys uh, met 15 years ago uh, in college. Just about. And, Just about. Uh, this Don't want to age ourselves. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> We were some, some time ago, and uh, you. This is your third feature that you've made as a collaborative. A couple, endeavor. you can say. <laughs> yeah, you can say it. Um, and uh, so I was just wondering if you could start off by talking a little bit about your working relationship and your um, how a movie like this comes together um, as as sort of a joint venture. Sure. Yeah. We. Uh, yeah. So we we did meet. Uh, we were randomly assigned roommates uh, freshman year of college so that was uh, you know the NYU bursar is probably responsible for this movie more than anybody else um, but uh, but yeah I mean we were I, you know we were best friends for a few years before we started to really work together and I think that's what makes it all possible uh, because if you can't um, if you can't argue with your collaborator like they're a sibling of yours uh, you know and, and have the ability to move past a creative difference or, or take a creative difference you have and, and actually make something better because of it, then you know, it, just, it just isn't gonna, gonna work. And it's, it's funny because a lot of people ask us like, oh, should I get a writing partner or a directing partner? And we're kind of like, no, not necessarily. Because <laughs> like, it has to be the perfect person that you just you know, have the same, uh, the same kind of you know, mind and everything. And I think just over the years, that's kind of what what we've become, so, yeah. That's how the process works, he's, he's got it. I trust that answer, I don't need to add anything. Uh, this is, um, in some ways, this is a story about two couples across a generational divide, and, uh, but you, it, there are some uh, similarities between these couples, and, but obviously they are at odds. Um, and the, the mechanics of the story really follow from that sort of tension. And I wonder if you could talk about how uh, how you built the story around that idea. Sure. Yeah. Um, that that is definitely true. Uh, 
when we started conceiving the story, uh, we knew that Mickey and Jules were characters we wanted to follow. Um, we were just really interested in these lovers on the run um, and sort of preoccupied with the idea of uh, could we establish a love that between two characters that was so compelling and magnetic from the jump that it would uh, you know, do away with or, or make their transgressions that we show on screen okay. Um, so that was kind of the fun challenge we were working with. And then you know, we knew we wanted to start with a bang. We knew we wanted to have them break into a house and find something they shouldn't find. And then it, the question was, well, who, who are the antagonists going to be? Who are the foes that we're going to pit them against? And we went through a bunch of options. And ultimately, the most interesting to us was kind of a bizarro world, warped, you know, toxic foil of themselves in, you know, 30 years. Because um, that really gave us the most kind of, you know, stuff to chew on between the two of them. Um, and, you know, you look at, there's a lot of movies that are lovers on the run stories. Uh, and so we just thought it was kind of interesting to take, you know, let's say the, the couple from True Romance and pit them against, you know, Natural Born Killers, you know, and just sort of like have fun with that because all those movies have a different um, moral universe that they exist in where, um, you know, sometimes you're with the characters the entire time, sometimes by the end, like in Natural Born Killers, you're like, uh, I don't know if this is Killing okay anymore. There's a lot of murdering going on. Um, so we just thought that was a really interesting quartet to play with. Um, and, it, it, the, you know, once we'd drawn those characters, they sort of just wrote themselves. We dropped them into a location and, you know, let them go. You do a beautiful job of uh, walking the line between comedy and true suspense and tension and... Um, sort of unsettling dread almost. And uh, I, there are, I think there are a lot of things that uh, contribute to that, that we can talk about, certainly the look of the film and um, the performances. Um, I'm interested in asking, actually, Micah, since we have you here, you, uh, one thing that audiences might know Micah from uh, was her leading role in It Follows, which, uh, yeah, fantastic film. Uh, and, I'm a guest. Uh, great performance and that is a very straightforward horror film that, that is um very straight faced i mean it yes yes yes, yes. yes. it it has humor but it's a it's a <laughs> it's sort of a subterranean humor um and so i was interested in um sort of how you approached this kind of a role that was um Again, very straight-faced, but also you have to work in a very organic way with the sense of humor of the story. Yeah, I mean, what um, what drew me to the script was the the characters and the relationship between Jules and Mickey, and I fell in love with them immediately. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you read a lot of scripts as an actor, and, and this was something special. And um, I think what makes the film so enjoyable is, like you were saying, you know, you're, 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 you're laughing, but also you're like, fuck, this is a bad situation that we're in. Um, and so I think it makes it really fun. And um, I th even just reading the script, I could, I could feel um, the, the fine line of kind of leaning both ways, which um, really intrigued me. Yeah, and you know, I, I think that that, um that sort of mix of, of, uh, of horror and, or thriller and comedy was uh, sort of the, the, the best thing that the script had going for it, but was also a challenge because, you know, it's, it's great from, from an actor's perspective. We knew that this script might stick out amongst your stack of scripts that you're reading, but at the same time, once you decide to do it and, and you know, 
look into who's, who's making it, it's like these guys nobody's ever heard of, and the first couple of films we made are not this tone at all. And so we were, you know, kind of asking them to creatively just trust us that we could, we had, it's not like we, we always knew we wanted to make this, this film and films like this and that this was something we wanted to do. Um, but, uh, you know, for a few different reasons, our first couple of films were not that. And so they kind of had to, uh, it, it took a long time to find the, the, right, the right actors that understood what we were going for here and wanted to be a part of it because it's a risky thing for an actor like this because if, you know, uh, we always say like if you're doing like a, a, a straight drama or something like that, the, there's the, the ceiling and the floor are a little tighter where if, you, if that movie comes out poorly, you as an actor are not necessarily going to, you know, it's not gonna hurt you so bad, but if you do a movie like this, like if we fucked this up, the actors would have looked absurd, you know? And so it's, it's a risky thing for them and, uh, and we thank them all for taking that risk. Uh, you just mentioned the look of the film for a moment before and it just reminded me, we have uh, a lot of crew members in the audience. So uh, our cinematographer, Matt Mitchell, uh, production designer, Annie Simeone. Uh, Danny Johnson, who Danny plays Johnson's Officer Wells, uh, our location sound mixer, Brennan. I, you know, why doesn't everybody just stand up if you're involved in the film? <laughs> our gaffer, Andrew Hubbard. Oh, Ketterer, I didn't know you Dude, were here. Ketterer's here. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Jordan Drake, our QPA. Oh, yeah. This I know. Murderer's Row over here. EP Chad Harbold. So these are the people that actually made the movie look good and sound good and feel good. This is like that SNL sketch when they're yeah. at, the, <laughs> they're at the, like, the short film festival and they afterwards they're just like, hey, everybody who worked on the film, come on up. And it's the whole audience except one person. We figured this would be a friendly screening. It's a hometown screening, so. Uh, can, you, uh, can you talk a little bit about the look of the film and how, because uh, that is one of the most vivid and I think um, yeah. uh, sort of striking things about the, that you take with you after seeing this movie everything from the um from the look of the house to the credit sequence and the um this sort of yeah uh, yeah that's that's the product of a whole bunch of these craftspeople um their amazing work uh to sort of call out a few of the key elements um our cinematographer matt mitchell who shot all of our films um Hopefully we'll shoot all of our films. Um, he's always been, you know, an incredible creative partner to us. And we start really early and start talking in really broad shapes about what we want for the look of a film. And, and then he actually knows what he's doing. So he goes and figures out how to make that happen. And in the case of villains, we knew it was this kind of crazy, you know, adventure, a lot of like drugged out sequences and this and that. So our lens choice uh, was, was really important. And Matt went and hunted down um, a, a set of, of really weird, wonky, anamorphic lenses that give the film, like a lot of the, you know, when a, a focus rack happens, you really notice it, it breathes quite a bit. Um, and, you know, you'll see like fringing a bit on the edges and we sort of really loved that. It just, you know, in a lot of ways we wanted to design this film to be this sort of fairy tale and exists, you know, north of reality. Um, but south of farce, and uh, a lot of that is is that that lens choice, and and just the way that we collaborated with Matt on the on the coverage design, and then also hard to miss the production design of the film, and Annie Simeone is responsible for. Um, 
and her incredible team, um, Lisa Green, uh, our, our set decorator, and um, you know they gutted this house. Basically, they brought all of the regular furniture out and brought a bunch of wallpaper and really weird, unique pieces in just to give it that feeling of a time capsule. Uh, something that George and Gloria, who are these sociopaths that are just kind of wearing like this this human skin and but aren't don't have you know much in the way of of core identities uh, except what they've pulled from you know old like Clark Gable movies and stuff from like the 50s. So um, you know it was uh, it was and on all all films the DP and the production designer are, are on the good ones at least are really close collaborators and I think Annie and Matt really uh, pulled. Uh, quite a bit of a Herculean effort off by making this film look the way it does. Yeah, and then Matt, Matt Reynolds is the animator who, uh, who did that, that sequence at the end, and he was just, we had seen his work, uh, he did the bumpers at South By one year, and uh, we were there uh, with the film, and, um, and they just always kind of stuck with us, and uh, uh, Chad Harville, one of our great friends and executive producers, hooked us up with him because they had a previous relationship, and, um, and we just kind of, you know, it was funny because that sequence used to be at the beginning of the film in, a, in an earlier version of the cut. And we kept kind of getting these notes that were like, you know, the beginning of the film is lacking a little bit of energy or whatever. And we're like, really? Is it? And then we, we sort of got this note from a, a really great, um, you know, filmmaker friend of ours who said, yeah, I think the sequence kicks too much ass. Like, you need to, like, if you didn't have that start, you wouldn't have that expectation of that energy. And then, so when we put it on the end of the movie, it just made so much more sense because, you know, the, the movie itself has a somewhat somber ending. Um, and so that, that title sequence, that credit sequence, allows you to still leave the theater with, like, a little pep in your step. And it has almost the opposite effect, where when it's at the end, it makes you think the movie you just watched was even more energetic than it was. So, um, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing how all that works. And, and it, that specifically is illustrative of, like, this movie was such an incredible learning experience for Bobby and I, where, you know, you hear the adage of, you know, you make the movie three times, once when you write it, once when you shoot it, and once when you edit it, but um, you don't often see that, that really proven. Um, but for us, you know, the, the, that final step in the edit, we made so many discoveries and so many changes that, that made the film really click into place that weren't there in the script uh, and, you know, not necessarily there when we shot. Um, you know, I think one of probably our favorite scene in the movie isn't in the movie. Uh, it was like an, an extended monologue that Micah has in the basement with Sweetie Pie uh, where she talks more about her backstory. And there was just sort of a pacing issue in the second act, and we were like, couldn't figure it out, and we were like, fuck, well, I, I guess we, we fucked up. The movie doesn't really play like it should, you know? And then finally we were like, well, even though this sick, like, five-minute, one-take dolly push where she's crying, like, we, if we love it, but if we get it rid was, of it... It was the hardest thing ever, because it was, it was like, so it hard. was the best thing we'd ever done, and... <laughs> it really is. But it was just, like, it just didn't, in that moment, it didn't, it was almost too... Good. It was almost it was like, much like the title sequence. It was too. It was, it was too much emotion for that moment in the movie, and it kind of stuck out as this. We got a little too real for a second. Um, and 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 sorry, once, Micah. And once, yeah, I know. Sorry, you're too good of an actor. Oh, thank um, you. But uh, but, but once but, yeah. we removed it, so we, we were like, oh shit, it's a movie now. Yeah, it, we did it. Yeah. So that, it's you so know. funny how close, like that that pH balance, that little line that you dance, like you're one scene away from a movie feeling totally, you know, paced incorrectly. Um, and it's a definite another adage. It's like kill your darlings. Like that's a really easy thing when you have a bunch of scenes that you don't like. You're like, oh, I'm killing my darlings, getting rid of these scenes that don't work. But that was uh, like yeah. so hard to get rid of. But yeah. it helped so the movie so. in a holistic uh, way. You just gotta put them in the special features. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. There we go. 
I mean, I think it really, buy the DVD. <laughs> it really shows because it's a movie that has incredible chemistry. Just all the pieces work together in a way that feels very precise. Thank so, you. Um, I just want to throw out, uh, while we still have some time, uh, in case the audience has any questions, I'm sure they do, so I'll open it up. Uh, I believe we have a mic that will come around, so I'll call on you, and then uh, one of our mic runners will come find you. Uh, so I see one hand right there in the middle. No, thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure, yeah, I mean, that was something that, you know, we were kind of, uh, we were kind of dealing with the, the, uh, the who lives, who dies question until fairly late in the, in the writing process. And with, with Gloria, I think what it came down to for us was that the, the, the evil in that relationship came from George, who was more uh, this sadistic, person, whereas Gloria, we felt a little bit more uh, was somebody who, who suffered from mental illness and was being taken advantage of, or you know, we kind of found this person that she latched onto who just happened to be this really evil person, and so she just sort of, through osmosis, uh, absorbed some of, some of his um, sadistic tendencies. And so we just felt like it, uh, every time Every time we killed her in in the writing process, it just felt uh, too. Mu it felt like it was too much, you know. Um, it felt like she didn't quite deserve that, and it kept kind of coming off as weird. And and then when we, you know, this way where she is, you know, she she's alive, but uh, you know, it's not going to be good from this point on. Felt a little bit more appropriate for her. Well, yeah, and a decision like this is a little bit more. Um like economic, it's more—it's packed with more juice because you get to learn a little bit about Jules as well through her mercy um, that she shows. Because I think Jules understands that Gloria and George's love is a very toxic and obsessive and codependent one, um, and Gloria without George is perhaps a fate worse than death for her. So um, we felt like that was kind of a nice note for Jules to go out on as well, who we think is on the moral spectrum of this, the most you know, virtuous and pure. And then Mickey, of course, is a controversial death. A lot of people get mad at us for doing that, but we Pretty felt nice. that the moment that he um, made an effort to abandon Sweetie Pie in the basement, he was already doomed. Um, so, you know. We're very vengeful that. gods with high standards. Yeah. <laughs> but Bill is still alive, yeah. so it's just the character that died, actually. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, you, all you have to do is take out student loans, and then you'll get to, I have about $120,000 worth of them, so it's pretty, pretty fun, even if you don't have money. Um, but no, I mean, I think that, honestly, if I could, you know, not if I could, I mean, we met in college, so it's a different, it's a different, I think the value of, like, going to college for film is more about the, the people that you meet there than it is the actual learning of the craft. I think you would, you learn a lot more and a lot quicker if you just get on a set and you just start pa and you just work your way up like you don't have to at no point has anyone ever yeah yeah at no point has anyone ever been like can i see your you know your bfa please like that's just not how it works in this in this industry you know so um yeah i mean i yeah i think i think that's the thing and then i i, I think it's just like it's just 
get on set and it all will kind of work itself out. And then, um, you know, I think the, the sort of tougher part is if your aspirations are to eventually direct or something, it's, it's, it's making that first movie. And that I think was the hardest thing for us. It, it was hard to make, to get this movie going, um, but only because we were trying to make it at a certain level. Um, the, the, our first film we made for $50,000 and that was like, you know, we were, that was just pulling from family friends and, and things like this, just cobbling it together and, and you know, dentists that live down the street, whatever you could find. Um, and and I, I think the important thing though that I, um, a lot of people, a lot of younger filmmakers um, sort of miss or don't think about as much as like, you should really think about ma making a movie that is going to be inexpensive to shoot. And like, and I, I feel like, you know, it sounds obvious, but a lot of people will think like, oh, you know, my movie doesn't have like dinosaurs or car chases in it, so it'll be cheap. But it's like, yeah, but is it in like 17 locations? Like you're fucked, you know? So, uh, so that's why like our first movie, we kind of, it all takes place in this one uh, sort of big mansion, and that's the, our first lesson that we learned kind of was how much more time you have if you're shooting in one location, because you're not loading in and loading out every day. And so our first film we shot in like 11 overnights, but it felt more like having like 15 or 16 days because we were able to just get in and shoot and then leave at the end and then come back and all the lights, are, you know, you're not doing company moves all day long, so I think that's, sort of the biggest thing is to like, I feel like there is a, uh, a, a, a stigma where you, you kind of like, there's like this icky feeling in the creative process when you're thinking about budget writing your screenplay. Um, but I think you, you, it's just a reality. You know what I mean? It's like, do you want to have the, the you want to be able to make the movie or not? You know, and I think you have to have a little bit of that um, protosorial side of, of, your, of your brain when you're making your, your first thing because it has to be cheap because nobody lets you direct a movie until you direct a movie. It's weird. Uh, just speaking about uh, the uh, inspiration for the characters of George and Gloria and how we sort of handled that situation. Um, so yeah, we always like to um, think about George and Gloria uh, as if they were sort of like uh, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek from Badlands if they didn't get caught at the end of the movie and they just kind of kept on cruising and, and jumped around the country for a bit and landed on the East Coast uh, 30 years after their adventures in the movie. Uh, so that was kind of a character uh, duo that we, were, that we were looking at. And then as far as the real life you know, stuff in the news that inspired it, we were writing villains initially right after that horrific story came out. It was like in, like I want to say Ohio, sorry, Chad. Uh, I want to say Ohio. You know, it wasn't um, Chad. It, was it wasn't Chad, state no, that he's but in. it was that guy that had like three women in his basement and one of them finally escaped after like 12 years. Because um, we were kind of trying to figure out what's the boogeyman in the house that they find, you know, like we knew some parameters we wanted to, to fill and and so we did sort of rip that from the headlines a bit, um, the idea of someone holding, uh, you know, someone captive in that way. Um, so I think those those elements kind of created the cocktail that led to George and Gloria. And then the actors themselves brought so much to the roles that like, you know, I, I, it's hard for us to even remember what was on the page. I'm sure it was very flat and boring and then Kira and Jeff made it what it is. I'll go first. Um, so before oh, you had mentioned, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to. Oh no! Here, let's let Maddie. Maddie can just go off the rails. Uh, the, the guy, 
First with the mic uh, okay. right now, and then... His name happens to be Mike as well. Very quick. Um, what were your, you were talking about the, the antagonist you settled on. Uh, you were talking about you had some other iterations of the antagonists. What were the antagonists, the prior iterations of the antagonists? Oh, man, I mean, that's, that's no fair. Um, to, to be honest, I do not remember. Yeah, <laughs> we wrote this know. movie in 2014. Um, it, this, we wrote this movie a, a long, long uh, time ago, and, and a lot has, has come of it since then. I, I don't want to make it sound like there were, you know, it's not like, is it lizards or like a shark? <laughs> like, it, they were versions of, you know, pe humans who lived there and where it was just a matter of what's their, you know, what's their, their, what's their backstory? Is yeah. it like, you know, do they have, um, you know, at that point we didn't even necessarily know that it was going to be a little, a little girl that they found or something, you know? So there's a lot of, uh, you know, it, it could have been somebody running some sort of operation or some, some kind of, uh, some kind of thing where, um, where this was not like the first person they were holding there and like, are, are Mickey and Jules going to become part of their, you know, whatever they're doing here. Um, and, and it actually, it, it was not. It was nice when we finally decided on George and Gloria because it became so much more about the characters instead of the you know whatever cool sci-fi weird story we could be you know telling them do it. You know if it was going to be that it was like you know some aliens or they're like you know harvesting people's organs like it's just a whole other thing that you kind of you know, get into and it can make you lose focus a little bit. And it was nice that we were able to, you know, we wanted to be able to have all the scary stuff come from just like these people, like in their personalities, you know, I don't even yeah, think he needs it. But. Just so everyone can hear. A question for Micah. Um, there are some moments in the movie that are pretty gory, but for me, maybe the hardest scene is the tongue stud. Um, yes. How was that like shooting that with uh, Bill Skarsgård? Because you're both pretty closely together, so that must have been a little bit awkward to do so. <laughs> um, yes, there was a, f a fake tongue involved. It was pretty weird looking. Yep. Uh, Brian Spears and Pete Gurner right, for the <laughs> special, special effects, effects makeup, makeup team. team yeah. Amazing. Uh, I mean, yeah, that was, we, we um, the, the tongue ring was always a challenge. I think we've all agreed we're never going to do a movie never ever again, again yeah. that has never. a tongue ring in it. Never. You it's, can't, like, fake it. That's no. the thing. Like, we were like, oh, it's like an ear piercing. Like, we'll find a magnetic one. or so. Your tongue no, is too thick. You it doesn't work it. that way. And, and then, then you can't talk when it does it, you know? And then I think when so we were writing, we also thought that we'd just be able to find an actress that either had a tongue ring or, or was willing to pierce their tongue for our movie. And then when this became a reality, we were like, wait, we're what fucking is wrong idiots. No one's going to do that. The, like, the chance of infection is like 40%. Like, there's no way that we're going to do that. The insurance company will drop the movie. Yeah, we're asking like professional actors to risk losing their tongue. Yeah, you don't need that, right? Not a good idea. Yeah. No, but yeah, we, there were a bunch of devices we used. There was a little suction cup thing well, that she had to... I, I love the most was that you guys test... You did it with me. We had each to. had our fake tongue rings and we all tested it out together. Well, <laughs> like if you suck the air out and then, yeah. then, then like this, they did, look, look, look. And like we're all just like running around. Yes. We, did it all, we did it all together. That's important. We That's did. the thing Bobby and I do with our, with our actors. We don't make them do anything that we haven't done. So we were all snorting lines of powdered milk uh, during true. rehearsals. It's true, they did it which, like, See, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, we're all pacing around. We're like, this is milk, right? I know, it's uh, good milk. Great. But, but yeah, with, with the, the end of the, the tongue stud saga is that you can't even fucking tell if she has a stud in her mouth or not. Like, you can't see the top of her tongue. So right. Yeah, I mean, we, we just, like, we kind of realized uh, 
at a certain point, like, well, she can just have an actual tongue stud in her mouth for every scene where she was to be chewing on it. And other than that, you're not seeing the top of a person's tongue yeah. most of the time. Or you're, the tongue is inside the mouth, it. it turns out. It is. We so found that out after. Yeah. Can't see it. That what kind of oh hello, <laughs> what kind of draws you in general then to the horror genre? Is that for all of us? All, yeah. all yes. Uh, yeah, I think begin. you should start. Oh, okay. I think okay, you should start. Well, um, I mean, I I grew up watching horror movies. I was obsessed with horror movies, and I think um, there's something uh, that's so fun to like be really scared, and it's not a feeling. Well, I hope it's not a feeling you have every day, because that'd be bad. Um, but there's, there's something I think very special about the horror genre. And um, I guess reading this script, um, you know, there, there were scary elements, but also really funny elements, but also really grounded elements that all put together, I think, make a very um, special and, um, yeah, I don't know, there, it was something very unique that, you know, yes, there were horror, horror elements, but also something very refreshing about it. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and I think that we, you know, uh, we, don't get me wrong, we love horror movies, but I, you know, I feel like it would be unfair to um, some, some directors who are truly, uh, like, obsessed with horror movies, and that is exactly what the, I think it's been a little bit more of a, not a coincidence that we've made horror movies, but it just happens to be that these movies that we've made have been, you know, and, and like the, Villains is not, you know, it, it's not gonna, it's not uh, hereditary, it's not gonna scare the shit out of you the whole time. It's not a, it's, it's not, um, you know, so I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna say that we, we didn't like get into movies like to make horror movies, you know, it was something that we, we developed a, a love for, I think. It's something that like, I didn't, when I was little, I, I didn't want to watch horror movies, you know what I mean? Like, and it wasn't until I started to like, you know, uh, really, you know, get, get into college and hang out with a bunch of, uh, bunch of people in film school and started, you know, you had to be like, yeah, I'm fine watching a horror movie, absolutely, throw it on, I'm fine. Um, and, and then you kind of, once you get past that, uh, that, that fear, um, you, uh, you know, we started, to, that's when we started to fall in love with them a little bit more. But I don't want to say that we like place horror as a genre above anything else, it just happens to be what we've done so far. Yeah, I feel like it's like a really exhausting conversation of like, is something a horror? Is it not a horror? Like, there's so much of that with like Jordan Peele's movies, and like, I got Twitter. I, I, I'm seeing enough of that. Uh, but you know, I don't think we mar we would necessarily like market this as a horror because it does like create expectation for a viewer that wants to you know really or at least as just a horror. as just a horror, right? There are certainly dips into horror, um, and you know, but our first movie, Body, like I wouldn't call that a horror. I'd call that a thriller. Um, you know, even our second movie, which is a vampire movie, I'd still call it probably like an action movie that has horror elements. So, I don't know. I don't know. They're all just movies, <laughs> man. Um, so what was the, um, the first scene that you guys shot? Like, I guess excluding exterior trees, you know, like, that you... In I time? Guess you can each like, that. Yeah, like, I guess, like, actually, like, because yeah, yeah. I know you don't necessarily film it in sequence, right? So I guess, like, yeah. what was that first... Yeah, you wish you could. It's always, <laughs> always the goal is to shoot chronologically, but um, it's often impossible. Um, uh, this is a great question for David Ketterer, actually, our first AD, who's responsible for putting the schedule together. Um, it really is this, the schedule for this movie was a real Swiss watch. Yeah, well, you know, because the, the, one of the, you know, we've said there's a lot of practical benefits to shooting a single location, but one of the, the 
issues with it is that it's a real dance of where you're going to be shooting versus where all your stuff is being stored, all the equipment and all the like you know dozens of other people, um, and you have to be prepping for days ahead. So the first thing that we shot, like the um, basement. yeah, basement. we shot the basement for the first five days. Ketter, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Six, okay, six days, um, because we needed to, this is another fuck thing about this location, but the driveway was, uh, the grade was too high to keep a truck in the driveway, so we had to bring the truck in, unload the, all the equipment into the house, uh, and then get, have the truck go somewhere else. So while we were shooting the basement, all the gear and stuff was upstairs, and then when we finished the basement after the first week, uh, we went to the first floor and shot that floor out, and then all the equipment while we were shooting that was put into the basement. Uh, and then our you know, set decks and, and G and E guys that were pre-lighting were like up on the second floor preparing for the coming days. So it was a you could really like a, you can just imagine like a, a sort of cross section of the house and all of us in like fast motion just going around like the yeah. Benny Hill theme song. Like that's yeah. what it was like. But you know, while we're shooting, no one can work. So it's like everyone's like moving shit and putting C stands away and like the art team is like stapling shit to the walls and stuff. And then we call action and everyone just has to stop. So it's like really frustrating to to work in a single location, but I do think the benefits outweigh the uh, the liabilities of it. It sounds like you guys went through a lot of iterations about um, who was going to survive the whole thing by the end of it. Um, I'm curious if, when you started writing this, if your intention was to um, write a female protagonist into the film, or if that kind of evolved over time. Um, was that something on your minds kind of from the beginning of writing? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess in we didn't like... I think it was more like the protagonist of the movie we were write, writing is a female than it is us being like, we, we weren't going out and being like, we need to like make a movie that stars a woman and like take advantage of some social moment. Or It's just what the story was, you know? I, I didn't think, um, we, didn't, uh, we didn't really, you know, try to, to do that. It's just kind of, it's just kind of the way it was like, our Did first movie was the same sort of think thing. Think like, there was killed? There was... <laughs> We would never. You were always too good. Yeah. Um, uh, but one thing we did want to play with with Jules was sort of audience expectation based on you know how she behaves and how Mickey how they behave as a couple when you first meet them. Um, and we were kind of trying to do a slight rope-a-dope where we wanted to introduce her as like a, a little bit sort of like ditzy or like without agency. Like she was just going to follow Mickey's lead, and he was like the sort of super capable, you know. Uh, dude who could pick locks and like you know all that stuff uh, and then at that moment when you know he wants to leave Tweetie Pie and she's like I, fuck you I do not give a fuck we're not leaving here and you kind of realize like oh okay she's actually calling the shots I just didn't realize she like they're so in love that they have such a trusting relationship that you guys just sort of mask that from us but like you know they each get to have agency at different times in the film and obviously she kind of takes over in the third act um, and has the sort of plan and executes that to actually get them or get her out of there. Um, so that was something we did want to play with uh, as it pertains specifically to Jules, like what your expectation would be, you know, from the first scene onward. I love the uh, car wash scene. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I thought that was a great metaphor for their love. And I w I'd like to just, maybe you could discuss the, uh, some of the creative aspects behind that. And, uh, oh, yeah. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, the, the first scene or the last scene? Right. Oh, that's that's a good question. I think the that was definitely the first one was where we uh, and it was one of those moments where like then when we thought of the second one we were like oh we'll do it again at the end you know um, and it was just something that like it was something we had both 
uh, we we both had uh, you know uh, experiences with you know where that was just not like, with each other like not with each other. you know you know it's not I mean? long like enough we, we each like when we we kind of were thinking of you know what is what we just wanted something that they could do that was specific uh and that would kind of make you instantly uh fall in love with their love you know and but i think the the best the better part is how we actually shot that because it was like way more elaborate than what it looks like up there. We had, we were on a stage that day and we had like a, a platform that was like six feet off the ground and like, and so so she's she's laying on top of it with like a, like a four foot wig like this and then, and the camera at the bottom. And it's just like, it's so much more elaborate than it probably needed to be. But like, it's so funny because it's such an emotional thing when you're inside of that tunnel with them uh, and yet like from our perspective we were like out behind the monitor and there's Micah on this weird like table thing and we're just like Cry! you know <laughs> so it's, it was like it was a strange it was a strange thing but but yeah, yeah. Well, I think that is all the time we have, unfortunately. Um, but I hope that everyone will come and join us for a glass of wine or a beer at the reception, uh, generously hosted by Gunpowder and Sky. We're very grateful. Uh, and can we please Woo. thank these? Thank you guys. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's, uh, we're very excited to be hosting the New York premiere of the film. Um, so, uh, just getting right to it, um, you, Henry and Avra, co-wrote the film along with the third collaborator, uh, and this is a, it's, it's, it's an interesting film because in some ways it is, uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting for a lot of reasons. These guys are my favorite audience members ever. It, uh, in some ways, it hues to a very particular genre or tradition of sort of the serial killer film, uh, but it's also something very different in the sense that it's a family, kind of a fist, twisted family drama. Um, I like to think of it as a touching family drama. Yes. <laughs> family that learns to love again over yeah. pancakes. Exactly. Maybe, maybe both touching and twisted. <laughs> And uh, it's very, very tightly constructed as a narrative. Um, all the pieces sort of work together like clockwork. And I wonder if you could just talk about your working relationship and where this film came from uh, and sort of how it was birthed into the world from a <laughs> story. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, so actually, there was an original script by, by Will Hunley um, that was already set up at Blumhouse um, that Sean was already attached to. and. Uh, um, we had pitched Blumhouse another movie, another script that we had, that, that Alvaro had written that we'd been working on for a long time, and they were like, this is way too fucking weird for us, but have a look at this. And there was, you know, we ultimately wanted to take it in a very different direction, um, but the core idea of, you know, serial killer has a baby really interested both of us uh, as parents. And I was about to be a parent, and she is. Yeah, I have a daughter. Also, we've known each other. We went to high school together, so we've known each other for a really long time. That's how we like started collaborating in the first place. Um, but yeah, we got the script, and that was like the core idea that we were really interested in. Um, actually, working with Blumhouse, they 
basically they were like, what do you want to do? And we went in and we were like, this is what we want to do. Um, I was 100% positive that they were never going to let us make that ending. And they were like, well, if you earn it, you can do it the way you want to. And so we wrote a draft, we rewrote it, we did a polish, and then they were like, all right, shoot, shoot the movie. So it was, it was really nice. They gave us a lot of creative freedom. There's a, um, there's a very, <laughs> the look of the film is incredibly vivid. Uh, everything from the, the color palette to the, the way that lighting works in the film. Uh, there's, there's sort of a very particular kind of coldness or, or like sterile feeling to the look, um, which I, I have to imagine was very deliberate. Um, but there's also at the same time kind of a warmth, kind of a like this very timeless, cozy, homey feeling, especially to the Evan and Lauren's home. Um, and uh, how did you conceive of that? Um, well, yeah, that's that was absolutely what we were thinking. We wanted it to feel like, particularly the the nursery, to feel this very like warm. Um, first of all, I have to give a great deal of credit to our DP Isaac Bauman, who is amazing, and uh, and the Andahar twins, and the our production twins designers. Yeah, I mean, they were, just did amazing, amazing work both yeah, of those guys. Yeah, but we, you know, Avra and I obviously worked very close together. We were thinking about other movies and other sort of genres as we were writing and and that conversation continued once I got in with my department heads um, and we screened a bunch of movies so you know we really um, certainly color uh, and contrast of color so that it was you know ridiculous blue moonlight that sort of 80s 90s that we grew up with and we watched you know a lot of Brian De Palma where there's a lot of that kind of super saturated uh, color and and dividing you know uh, your characters within the frame and using sort of frames within the frame to in some ways sort of try to mirror their you know emotional state or or like you'll see you know for example in the gun scene uh, where Chris comes and um, comes into the house you know that scene where sort of Lauren is like trapped in this little you see the sort of walls literally coming in on her uh, as they're kind of looming, you know, in the foreground. So it, that was all obviously very conscious. And, and certainly there's like, we did a lot of research about serial killers and psychopaths. And there is a, a ritualism that's that's pretty much across the board. And obviously a coldness. I mean, the, the defining trait of, of any psychopath and by extension serial killers is a lack of empathy so i think you know in a lot of ways that was just mirroring uh you know heaven's nature um we also pulled a lot on like 30s los angeles noir um but where henry and i came to the table basically like with this sort of like de palma and like james m came influence when we got our department heads one of the great things that the andahar twins actually brought to the table is they really love giallo which wasn't really either one of our horror background or even like our thriller background but once they started talking about it and kind of showing us stuff and sharing a lot of that color palette that kind like we they were like this is you know, we were like, Henry especially was like, this is definitely the direction to take it. Like, we yeah. need to just take that sort of Michael Mann 80 saturation and just like deepen it that one level to that, to like bring in that giallo punch. And that's like one of the really 
fantastic things about working collaboratively, right, is that you get this whole, you get like all of these surprises that come along in the production. Yeah, no, it was great. We, we did, like Blumhouse let us use their screening room. This was like the best part of the, of the movie probably. <laughs> we just like watched all these movies that, that we'd been talking about, but then, yeah, the Andujars brought in some things that they wanted us to look at. And I was just like, yes, it's just like wallpaper and like weird texture and super saturated reds. and. And, and, like, yes. and Isaac, who was our DP, has seen, I don't know. I mean, he watches like four movies a day, every single day. Like I hang out with him in LA and we're like going to the movies and I'm like, oh, how, did you drive? And he's like, oh no, I took a Uber so that I could watch a movie on my way to like seeing this movie with you. It's amazing. <laughs> well, it shows. Yeah. Um, how did this, uh, sort of on a similar note, uh, there's a very particular kind of stylization to the performances. Um, the, the, the movie seems very, sort of very carefully cast. Um, the, the cast has great chemistry. Um, but there's a, sort of like a, a, a manneredness to the performances that sort of seems to have its origins in the... Uh, depiction of a psychopath, but sort of infects the whole film in a really interesting way. What, what went into that? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I mean, as Avro's pointing to, I think that's a, sort of a trademark of noir um, films. I mean, there's always this sort of patter and this heightened language um, that we're really attracted to, sort of, you know, hard-boiled detective stories. And but, it, yeah, just also, you know, we had a great casting director. We did have a great casting director, and we got incredibly lucky. But also one of the things that we talked about a lot when we were doing the research about actual serial killers is that a lot of the time, and this is actually more particular to sociopathology than psychopathology, but... Um, there's this feeling that they're wearing a human mask, right? That they don't necessarily feel as if they're human as well, that there's a separation. And when Sean, who was already attached to it, but like when we actually, we actually had to pitch it to Sean too to get his approval before Blumhouse would say like, okay, you guys can do your take. Um, and that was one of the things we talked to him about and he was so excited about that idea. And I think that is one of the things actually about seeing it big, because I've watched it on computer screen too, um, is you really, like that idea, I think comes through really beautifully. And that was such an incredible like amount of work that you guys did together. Um, and then some of it was just the incredible amount of luck we had with casting. Um, and we talk about this actually pretty much every time we watch the movie, but Kevin Carroll, who plays Detective Overstreet, um, we had been looking at a few different people and there was, one actor who gave an audition that was like exactly the way we had imagined the character reading it in our minds. And we were like, we really like this guy. I mean, and that guy is also incredibly talented. But then we watched Kevin's audition and he was just really quiet and patient. And we were like, whoa, we never even imagined that being a part of this character. And in the end, you know, like when he shows up, in, like every time he shows up in this movie, I'm like, oh, he's I mean, he so just steals amazing. every scene. He's so great. Yeah, and, he's so and, incredible. Yeah, that was like he came like that. That was totally we never imagined uh, that that's who that character would be. We imagined like a fast talking kind of you know pressure detective, you know. But yeah, I mean he's amazing it's in a everything. Surprise! If you you know he's in the leftovers, like everything he does is incredible. And Dale Dickey. I mean, we gotta give. National treasure. National treasure. <laughs>
Yeah, she was, uh, I, I found her performance surprising in that I didn't see the twist coming in a way that in some ways it feels like you're set up to be like, oh, well, yes, of course, it's it's this mo- mother-daughter, or mother-son, rather, um, thing going on. But she's she just does that vacillation between maternal and sort of calculating very fluidly. Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of the same conversations with her that we had with Sean, right? It was like, you know, discussing what a psychopath is. And, and she had that incredible... I mean, she was she was really psyched because she usually plays like like drug addicts, white trash kind of characters because she's you know got this crazy face and like she's she's like never you know she was thrilled to sort of play this much more kind of reserved, controlled character. And then also another amazing you know we who we forgot to mention, but um, Sarah, Sarah yeah Sarah Sensoy, who's our costume designer, brought this character through her wardrobe that again we never envisioned at all that she was this sort of well put together sort of almost elegant very controlled and that added a great deal uh to her performance and was a surprise to her and she just you know kind of slipped right into that but again it's like another complete surprise and the way that she thought about the evolution of character through wardrobe you know even like sort of as lauren gets closer to the kill she starts to dress more and more like Evan, you know, she starts to wear these dark colors and leathers and stuff like that. So there was a whole other sort of side to the development that had never occurred to me, frankly, until until she brought it. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm uh, excited that we have uh, Trevor as well, who uh, wrote the music for the film. Which, um, yeah, thank you. That's another aspect of the collaboration that we haven't touched on, but the music is integral to this film. It's really, it's like woven into the texture of the film and really um, sort of um, almost like blends with the look of the film in in really interesting ways. Could you just talk about the process of designing the music scape of this film? Yeah, I mean, Henry and I talked, uh, well, Henry knows my kind of electronic work because uh, I used to have an electronic band called My Great Ghost and it was just uh, purely like like a synth pop band and uh, and so he's like oh yeah like he shot a music video of mine and like so I've got this film and you know that do that kind of thing but I I'm, I have like an orchestral background and stuff so I was like all right well I'm gonna pull all that world up again and do this but then the references that he was thinking of were like more in the world of like Stranger Things, but like darker and more gritty and everything, obviously, because this is not that. <laughs> so, um, but then you know, then you get into the story and what what's actually happening. And I think it's you know, as we were kind of developing the ideas and where the music was going to go, and as I was composing it. Um, you know, it became a really like a strong and uh, um, one of the most like um, aggressive elements because so much of the film is is about being reserved. And while there's vivid colors and there's placement, everything's being you know perfectly placed, and you know everything. There, the music is just like <laughs> going after things, and it's it's like the raw emotion that's happening, and then it and then. 
you know, Henry loves those hard cuts. So like, the whole world is like exploding musically and then it's just like, boom, just stops everything. So there's a lot of um, that cool effect. So I think the music has that, it's like the, the uh, current that's pushing um, the emotional reactions that are happening while the characters and the scenes are, are uh, often, you know, uh, sometimes very controlled. So that's a kind of an interesting interplay between the two elements. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about a lot <clears throat> and that, you know, is always one of the things that makes me crazy in movies is where there's just wall-to-wall music and it's telling you how to feel as an audience and and sort of, you know, swelling when you need to swell and whatever. Like, And what we, we really wanted to do was to create more of a, like a dialogue and attention, you know, so that in many cases, like the music is sort of counterpoint to what's, to what's the emotion of the scene and, and to make it really a conversation between the elements as opposed to a, something that's a constant layer to give you an emotion, to give the audience an emotional safety net. Um, my, 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 my one question was, you know, kills. Um, I assume that's all practical, or is some of that digital? It, yeah, it's primarily practical. Um, so the Russells, who uh, Joss and Sierra Russell are married couple. They're married. They're, it's a married couple. Yeah. They do practical effects, and they're geniuses. So I, the first time I went to meet with them, uh, I was like, okay, so there's there's a lot, a lot of like stabby, like throat slashy things, but what I want to do is this thing where instead of having like a slash, like I want the knife to go in and then kind of pull out so that like blood could spurt the camera. And they were like, yes. They were like, like we've been saying that for years. Nobody's ever asked for that before. Um, uh, and yeah, so I mean, you know, and then it was like, prosthetic vaginas yeah they and, made the vagina and the baby the baby's yeah. a latex baby like josh is like shoving it through <laughs> in the back he broke of the his pinky oh that doesn't make it into the r-rated <laughs> version guys okay, so you're like what did it make it like the baby the scene no, does not make no, a lot it of it a lot of it a lot of it does actually so okay so let's talk about the r-rated thing so it's inevitably gonna come up and i probably am not even supposed to be talking about this but you know first time we submitted it it was like nc-17 which I found out also the weekend that, um, uh, what's it called? John Wick came out. And I was like, fuck you. Like that movie killed 300 people. Like it paints the walls with blood and you're giving me, and I'm like, I'm like, Hmm, what is that about? Right. And they never said birth scene the whole time. They like refused to say birth scene. So what I tried to do was cut everything around the vagina and the baby coming out, but leave as much of that as possible. And I had to go through it two more rounds, but ultimately <laughs> didn't end up cutting the whole birth scene, thank God. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's it's definitely less bloody, it's less stabby. Um, <laughs> you know, it still works. It's 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 I prefer this version. <laughs> Did they keep in some of the throat cutting? They did. I had to kind of shorten it a little bit. Uh, I didn't have to lose anything. I had to tighten things and lose a couple shots, but not any whole scenes. Ravenous. <laughs> Ravenous is my favorite scary movie. Yeah, that's that's definitely up there. Um, I mean, Videodrome 
early Cronenberg is definitely, I mean, practical effects. Uh, that's probably my favorite, like the thing, um, Cameron's version. Yeah. Uh, Rosemary's uh, baby and the Stepford wives. Both of those are really high up there for me. Yeah, Rosemary's baby version, is yeah. good. I just saw the witch recently, which I thought was musically really super cool. I always get attached to the music. I'm like, just pay attention to the music. <laughs> like, oh, I guess the story's good. <laughs> yeah, and definitely, I mean, you know, on the thrillery side, De Palma for sure. Uh, I mean, you know, just Hitchcock with color and steroids. We did talk about Manhunter also when we watched this movie, which is sort of like... And Michael Mann's treatment of L.A. in general. I mean, Heat is another example of that sort of very, you know, like even in the ugly parts of the city, this very, like, controlled, mannered, uh, like, beautiful portrayal of what is actually kind of a very ugly side of, of the city. Um, so definitely Michael Mann is somebody we looked at a lot, too. Uh, he was asking about the, the sort of other films that inspired the sound design uh, of the film, um, and before that, sort of the... Sean's performance. So to answer the Sean question first, he was really involved from the beginning. Um, you know, we, like, like I said, we pitched him our sort of take on it. And then he read every draft. He gave notes. We had long conversations about the character. I sent him books to read. He sent me movies he wanted me to watch. Turns out he's like a huge, huge horror huge fan. fan. Um, you know, he told me to watch um, Martyrs. Yeah, he told you to watch more. Yeah, and 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 Brawl and Cell Block ninety nine, which he came up, come out a few you know few years ago, which was like incredibly brutal. Um, so we you know and 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 wanting to do, he really wanted to go dark. And every you know uh, we would pitch him things. We we're like, okay, this is really dark. So and he'd be like, it's great, darker, darker, darker. darker. But we knew he was like when we got the movie, he was already attached, and that was one of the things that we actually talked about before we even pitched it to Sean, was about using his likability um, and his face. Like, you just like that guy, you know? And and he's Stifler, he's funny. And having that be a break, right? Right from this kind of relentless, over-the-top killing that you have his, right? Like, he, he, he is trying really hard to make a departure. And I think he does, a, in my opinion, he does do a really beautiful job in this movie, but he also does know who he is too. And I think he used that really well, mostly because of just the enormous amount of work that he and Henry did together. Yeah, he's just got great timing. I mean, yeah, comedy actors, no timing. And the nicest guy, like the nicest guy. So I mean, easy like to... a Boy Scout, like so sweet yeah. and generous <laughs> like so, with the crew. Yeah, I mean, always, so surprising. Like, very patient and like lovely to deal with. Yeah. Um, oh, and sound design. Um, so other contemporary sort of references to the I mean Soderbergh does that a lot and and definitely like he's you know we're obviously fans uh, of his and and I, and I like particularly his approach to music I mean I, I love Cliff Martinez who's his primary composer um, but again it's like you know I don't know if you ever watched the Nick but that's this period show you know like turn of the century you know uh, show that's got this like crazy electronic score, you know, that's like set against a time when synthesizers didn't exist. So I mean, things like that, that call that 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 don't try to like hide the elements where where the elements themselves become as interesting as any other element, whether it's performance or story or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, like a, a synthesizer or like a synth score has like a really strong uh, connotation and it's certainly aesthetic. I mean, it, I mean, it harkens to like an 80s vibe, you know? And uh, so putting it in uh, in a film has a certain nostalgia or, you know, which can be like obviously on purpose and but it carries a certain weight. But you, but I think in this case, you know, we wanted to like have a little bit of a nod to that, but then also make sure it was modern and feel like it was something of of current. You know, like so I was using synthesizers and and eight oh eights and uh, you know, was, but you know that's an old that's an old machine, but still like in a more modern way and uh, uh, and just like utilizing it uh, as in a modern scoring way, even though some of the sounds might sound uh, like something you would have heard in the 80s. I love the score so much. There, there were actually, we are gonna release a record of the of the score. Yeah, it's coming out. Um, coming out on Vanity. Yeah, uh, Lakeshore Records, yeah. Yeah, so I was um, uh, thinking about the movie, remind me, I'm blinging out on the title, but there was a film that I think Michael Keaton did where he was like a, a father and he had like a family as well and then he did like a... Is it Mr. Mom? <laughs> Mr. Mom? Mr. Mom? It's just From like the 80s? Mr. Mom. No? It's definitely John. No. It was specifically that one. But maybe, I mean, maybe that, that might be the title. But he was like, he was uh, like rich and like he kind of like went on these uh, sprees of like killing people but very carefully Holy but shit. without a motive. Uh, does someone know? Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner? Oh, yeah. Yeah. they look so like Michael Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't all look alike. <laughs> Mr. Brooks. Mr. Mr. Brooks. Oh, I haven't wow. heard about that movie in a long time. You are the first one to make that connection, my yeah. friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that like a, like a sort of two-part question, but like quickly, was that like a reference, like where is that, um, influence uh, i mean mean, not intentionally maybe (laughs) Maybe. but i mean like yeah so i was like curious about based on those two films like um it seemed like uh there was a lot of it it seemed like justice was sort of at the core almost like some death note kind of thing justice being at the center of um of like the decisions that he's making while allowing like his own release um but through this sort of like false sense of justice. And like with other films like that I was like trying to mention, uh, the other film that I mentioned that I was wondering how like the film had all these different things and like uh, like reveals, it's almost like you expected certain endings, but then they came off slightly turned. But I wasn't too sure if there was any scenes that was attempting to allow me to figure out more about um, the psychological build or like uh, the psychological growth of the, the main character. And I was like wondering where, how, in like this horror film or in this like thriller, was the, was the psychological growth or breakdown or, or uh, something at the center of like what you were focusing on in this film or like is it more in terms like a just kind of like having these different things uh, across the, the film that allows the, the, the film to like kind of like work endlessly? 
Um, well, I think the, you know, Evan's justifications. So serial killers do tend to, uh, in some ways integrate often early traumas. You know, it's not, there are 1% of the minimum, 1% of the population are psychopaths, but there aren't obviously that many serial killers. So the combination, what, you know, what usually makes a serial killer go the extra mile from being a psychopath is trauma, right? Um, so there's always sort of that element or usually that element to their kills. There's some kind of connection to whatever that trauma is. And then there's also sort of the like drug addict junkie kind of pursuing that same high as they continue their kills. And they often repeat the same um, MO. Uh, yeah, the same MO. I think in I think in Evan's case, one of the things that we talked about a lot was that that morality allowed him to create his own sort of sort of um, his own sort of reality where his killing could be acceptable and could he could get the release that he's looking for so that he's doing the like that he's doing the right thing because he's calling the world of these like horrible people but the I guess it's like the evolution of the film more than the evolution of the character. One of the things that we talked about is that at first you root for him. Like you're like, yeah, he's killing Nazis and child molesters and he you know, these horrible people. But then what you realize by the third kill, even though that dad is like an abusive drug addict, is that he it's not that he's doing good, it's that he's being selfish and that he actually is a monster. So I think like the his emotional evolution has much more to do with, it happens actually very early in the film. It's like his relationship to his son and then about how he actually learns to fall in love with his wife by the end when it's revealed that she's basically exactly like him that he's sort of been pretending to have to be this family man but then at the end he's like oh wait like we actually all do belong together but that his morality is a falsely constructed morality so like whether or not you're killing a bad person you're still killing somebody and that's not an okay decision to be making but that Evan is completely able to live with himself because he's like I'm doing this I'm taking care of these non-people which is another aspect of sociopathology is that you don't feel like you're the same as everyone else you're better than everybody else and so it doesn't matter if you get rid of these people or are these things that are bothering you or doing bad things to other people and that also goes a little bit back to sort of the stylistic elements that you were talking about before i mean it's it was certainly our hope that you know once he kills Chris's dad and you, and you realize that hopefully the audience does essentially realize that the person they've been rooting for, for the last hour is, is a monster. And, and I think part of that is this kind of like Brechtian alienation that we're going for in kind of the coldness that allows that realization to happen. And, and that's also something that we always find really interesting is when filmmakers, you know, make make you hate your hero or at least if not hate your hero like doubt doubt your hero yeah i would also like to say that one of the things that we tried to do consciously in this 
movie also is that it was really important for us not to have like although the mother is like clearly very influential that it wasn't that the, it was like the mother's like endless nagging and like ruining her son that turned him into a serial killer which is sort of the story that we get all the time about serial killers and that she's it was, the hero i mean the nurse is the hero <laughs> the unsung hero of this movie um but that it also was really important that we make a movie where it was a serial killer who was neither killing for sexual reasons nor was it a man killing women so that's also i mean that was like our morality that we brought into it <laughs> Unfortunately, is not the most common, <laughs> but right. We did not there draw the line. No too much. <laughs> there was definitely no too there much. There was no point that we were like, "This is too much." Yeah. Anytime anybody came up to me and and like, I mean, for example, like Sarah, our costume designer, brought you know these different options for Dale after she after we realized that she's the one who killed the nurse. Um, you know, there's like regular nurse scrubs, and then there's like one that's like kitten angels and and she's like is this too much and i was like is that too much and i was like no, no. not too much I, I, the answer was never yes to that question um which is also which is largely just because we're making a film within a genre that one we both love and there is you know a lot of sort of cathartic joy in that and we knew we couldn't really bring, I mean, there's not that much new you can bring to the table. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's so much serial killer stuff out there, and it's such a wealth, and some of it's so serious, and some of it's not serious at all. Um, but I think, I mean, because we've known each other for such an incredibly long time, and we're pulling from so many of the same influences, we actually talked a lot about, like, these exact questions when we were working on the script together, where we were talking about opening it with this naked woman getting her throat slit in a shower um and then she's like you, the most male gazy thing you can do and then slowly in the assumptions that you like an audience member is going to bring to that and who they're going to think evan is and why they think he kills and then having that all kind of unravel as the movie goes on and i think yeah, that, essentially trying to use the trope to feed the twist you know well i guess uh it's it is late so we'll leave it there uh, but thank, thank you, you guys thank, thank you all so much for coming been listening to the film at lincoln center podcast our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe on itunes stitcher and spotify film at lincoln center is a nonprofit arts organization based in new york city and supported by individuals just like you for 50 years we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals series retrospectives and new releases the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org.